a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me across the desk, if she brings Nietzsche on vacation, she actually reads him, it's Amy Schiller. <laughs> Amy Schiller, welcome back to the Not Quite Great Books podcast. It, it's such a pleasure to step out once again from behind the yes, boards. indeed. From <laughs> producer Amy to host Amy. Of course. And of course, we say we send her fond bestest wishes to uh, Danielle, who's on sabbatical yes. <laughs> from the podcast <laughs> exactly. for the time um, being. Which is actually one of the enabling conditions, conditions of possibility, if you were, of this <laughs> mini project that we're taking on together this summer. <laughs> so true, bestie. Um, so which true. Which is uh, a little mini series that Amy and I are going to do on shows depicting the 1%, give or take. Give or take. Yeah. Then, and we will return to that. We trust us. Yes. We will get deep into, you know, assigning percentiles to various characters of shows. Um, I think we may refrain from that becoming an actual bit where we're like, this person's in the 98.5th, but... Uh, only only on the pod, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is sort of my job. <laughs> <laughs> So true. Yes. So true. So I think we're going to have an opportunity to do this later, but do you want to you wanna, uh, pub your book a little bit? Absolutely. I have a book coming out December 5th, 2023, and it's called The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. All right. Very relevant to shows regarding the 1%. <laughs> plus or minus, <laughs> give or take, um, and definitely relevant to this show and this episode in particular and the dynamics around wealth and virtue and nonprofits and the ways that they make us feel good without necessarily being virtuous. Um, so really excited to get into that in this episode and very excited to tie it into the themes of my book, which once again is The Price Please. of Humanity, yes. coming out December 5th. Can you pre-order it now? Um, it is not. It will be available for pre-order by the time this is released. We will have it in the show notes. All right. Wonderful. I'd yes. love, to, love to hear that. So today we are talking about in the first of the 1% episodes, uh, The White Lotus, Season 1, Episode 4, Recentering, directed by Mike White and written by Mike White. The IMDb summary for this episode is as follows. After Shane shoots down her latest career plans, Rachel is blindsided by an unexpected arrival. Tanya's attention turns to an intriguing hotel guest, and Armand's renewed commitment to sobriety is put to the test, according to IMDb. And I think we're going to do spoilers only through this episode of White Lotus. Amy and I have both seen all of both seasons of The White Lotus, but we're going to just spoil through 1.4 of White Lotus. So if you are more White Lotus in your future, you yeah. will be safe. Can I also say what a refreshingly robust IMDb description <laughs> compared to how things have been going with the Americans. Shit happens to Paige. Done. Out. Out. Exactly. Out. And exactly. that's it. So I think, Amy, you correctly directed directed us as a way to kind of frame our engagement with the White Lotus, what might what, in a way that might also connect to some of the other shows we end up talking about, are the way that characters in these shows, and in the White Lotus perhaps maybe more than any others, the potential conflicts between the characters as avatars of their class position or of class conflict on the one hand, and then actual characters, actual people with conflict and emotions with whom we do or do not identify, who do or do not kind of match up in their inner psychic lives 
relates to their class positions. And so maybe that's a way for us to think about this episode. Absolutely. Yeah, this is so this episode is so rich. This was I think the reason we came back to this as the episode um, for this series is that from its airing, I had a very strong, very hot take yes. <laughs> that is very much not the take that Danielle would have <laughs> for this show, were she to ever tolerate watching yes. it. Which um, she would not, and she is on record many times. Exactly, exactly. No, I, so, should I reveal my hot take at the start? I mean, we might as well, because your hot take is also, I think, our main point of disagreement on right. the White Lotus, so I think that, like, for content purposes, if nothing else, okay. let's do it. So, I'm going to put this in like the names of the actual characters and yes. how I'm responding to the actual characters and then we'll talk about thematically I guess how they relate so yeah. there are so many plots and subplots and I should say like we're not going to get to all of them on no. this episode but the central one is um Rachel and Shane um and the arrival of the aforementioned special guest who is Shane's mother played by the in like incredible Molly Shannon yes. who just like makes mincemeat out of this role is so beautiful <laughs> to watch. So Shane is from a very, very wealthy family. Yes. Rachel is his new wife from a much like humbler background. Yeah, middle class-ish, vaguely. Yes. Um, and from the beginning, it's clear that there are like discrepancies between the two of them in terms of just like how they approach life. And it comes out in this episode in the form of the discussion around career goals. So when the show aired, Rachel is supposed to sort of be an audience stand in, right? Like a person from a middle class background who sort of finds herself in this world of wealth and is sort of wowed and awed by it and also disoriented by it. As like a millennial, vaguely liberal coded journalist. Right, 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 right. Um, Who ended up like writing though, like listicles and SpawnCon. Yes, exactly. Um, And she, I think it's her sort of like um, horror about the cravenness of the of like the world of wealthy people that we're supposed to find sympathetic. I, on the other hand, found her deeply irritating. She <laughs> was my least favorite character on the show. I found her naivete inexcusable, <laughs> <laughs> like inexcusable for somebody who allegedly has her intelligence or has her alleged intelligence, I should say, uh-huh. who like entered a marriage where like questions about money and work are, I think, foundational to, like, a functional relationship. And she acts like she just got here. Like, she acts like she just arrived in this world and brings this very, like, Bambi-esque naivete that itself has, uh, like, its own self-serving undertone. But she thinks that because she is not, quote, one of them, because she's not from this world, because she's wound up here by accident, that somehow she can retain some, like, pure part of herself that's Mm. still, like, in the mix. Um, And so her, so she's sort of coded as, like, the good character who's being corrupted by this world. I don't think she's coded that way. Okay, fair enough. I think a lot, I think, I think the, her, speaking of Avatar, her as Avatar in the show is that she's like, you know, wandered into this world and is so overwhelmed and is like, oh my God, I can't believe these codes and mores, they're so, you know, so vulgar, so amoral, Mm -hmm. so like Mm -hmm. selfish, um, and is completely blind to her own, like, selfishness and her own self-absorbedness. But more than that, like, her um her naivete is in like i find it so unsympathetic because like 
her her spouse Shane, her husband, is pretty. A douchebag. He he's a douchebag, but a transparent douchebag. Correct. So my the hot take that I've he now, wears a like goofy ass Cornell hat. Absolutely, he's he's a little bit um Andy from the Office coded. <laughs> yes, with right? a lot more wealth. Yes, and, yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Um, Less striving. Absolutely. Because he's already made it. Because, right. Well, has he made he's the, anything? He's, he's in the 2%. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. in the 2%. That's right. So my hot take on the show was always that, like, Shane is right and Rachel sucks. <laughs> <laughs> is it that Shane is right or that Kitty is right? Both. Okay. Both. So Kitty, the mom, arrives in this episode. And um, so let's just pause there. <laughs> Do you want to explain what we mean by she arrives? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to take one step back yeah. and say a little bit about why Rachel spoke to me as a character. Okay, yes, please. Part of it actually is not about the class avatar part. It's the, like, indecisiveness and passivity. <laughs> um, I'm staring into the middle distance, <laughs> as all of these right. are also traits that I find unforgivable, right. <laughs> except uh-huh. for my friendship with John McMahon, <laughs> where I forgive them infinitely. <laughs> And how generous that is of you. I, I am eternally not, generous. Well, I am nothing if not benevolent. <laughs> so it's, but it's more of Rachel's kind of searching out for a purpose in a set of conditions that ought to be conducive to someone like has, has especially now like the material means with which to identify some sort of life project or life goal. But the frustration that is a large part personal for some of those like flaws in herself that I identify as flaws in me. Um, but then also as a result of like her f- going into this world of extreme wealth um, with the Patton family that adds a like doubles down on the constriction that she has somewhat self-imposed. Mm. Um, so like there's that aspect of it that I, that I did find like relatable and a mm. mechanism of, of identification for me. But uh, then I also think that like, for all of the many, many faults that you have begun to enunciate and will continue to enunciate with uh, Rachel. Until the end of time. Until the end of time with <laughs> Rachel um, as a character that, like, I think she's more right than she is wrong, ultimately. Okay. Um, let's let's recap for our viewers what actually happens between yes, these characters. Yes. So to your point that Kitty arrives. Right. So there's, uh, you know, they're on their honeymoon. Kitty is just decides to show up. Um, slash was semi indirectly invited there slash Armand is hotel manager has a role in making all of this happen, including the surprise nature of it. Yeah. Right. And tells Shane that he's got a surprise for him. Yeah. Uh, doesn't say what it is. Shane was like, I don't want your surprises because they're mid feud. Yes. Um, it's yes. escalated several times already. We'll continue to escalate further. And then like knocks on the patent door one night and there is Kitty. Yes. His mom on his honeymoon. Yes. On his honeymoon. Shane is thrilled by yes. the way that she's arrived. Yes. Nothing for you there. <laughs> like wow Jesus Christ. yeah fascinating stuff so kitty arrives and rachel is stunned um and kitty then proceeds to mo- just white rich mom her way through like a couple of days of their vacation um including a conversation with rachel um where rachel describes and this is picking up on an earlier conversation she'd had with shane she describes her desire to quote, make a difference and get involved with a great nonprofit, all of which speaks to her, like, her inability to reckon with her, um, 
her own actual sense of like ambition yeah. um, and just sort of redirect it into like, I want to do something that's going to make me feel better about myself and who I Correct. am. Mm-hmm. So she has this, so she's having this conversation with her, with Shane and Kitty and Kitty then says, why would you want to get a job? Mm-hmm. Like this is the most relatable, best part of Kitty's is like yes. our anti-work queen. Our- <laughs> Are anti-work because of extreme uh, right. generationally wow. transformative inherited wealth. But yeah, right. Wow. I mean, what a what a tangled <laughs> web we yeah, need here. That's, that's my heel turn is to identify Kitty is our uh, leader in the struggle against work. <laughs> yes. Okay. So comrade Kitty <laughs> says, no, why would you want to get a job? Her rationale being... Nonprofit jobs pay shit. Correct. True. That nonprofit jobs are really all about getting money from rich people. True. Also correct, right? <laughs> that, like, were Rachel to have one of those jobs, she would just be asking herself for money. Basically true. Basically true. What she doesn't say, by the way, but is also true, is why do you assume you can just waltz into a nonprofit and, like, get a job? Yeah. That there's a certain, like, oh, this whole world of, like, need and vulnerability exists, like, for me to then, like, exploit for my own feeling good about myself. To be fair, that's Amy's Arendtian critique of philanthropy. That's not Kitty's Arendtian critique of philanthropy. No, but I I feel comfortable inserting it in this (laughs) character's mouth with whom I so closely identify. Um, But what Kitty also says is, like, you can do so much more by being on a board by giving money if you have money that's what you bring to the table and that actually is like incredibly sharp accurate grounded political economy of a world where like nonprofits are there to like it redistribute a tiny, tiny fraction yeah. of wealth, right? And that in fact, a lot of the things that go wrong in nonprofits are when rich people think that people that these nonprofits need their quote expertise, yeah. that they need their stuff, that they need something that is not money, which ends up gumming up the works and getting in the way of the actual work that the professionals, the qualified professionals are trying to do because the rich people have have stopped understanding like what the transaction actually is here, which Kitty very crisply understands and summarizes for her dumb daughter-in-law. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Again, I think it's useful to distinguish character in the show, Kitty, from theorist of philanthropist Amy Schiller. I understand there's some confusion that very rightfully happens, and there's like some, you know, assemblage or something that's that's emerged in, in our conversation. But when Kitty and Shane do their cringiest possible money, 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 like happy yeah. dance, they're not saying, well, really what we mean is that we're just going to unconditionally give money to experts. That's not what that's about. That's a very, like, correct, I think, and, like, incisive analytical reading of this conversation. But again, like, this speaks precisely to what you were trying to identify, that, like, there are these characters as characters, and then there are these characters as avatars of class. That's right. That's right. And and so while I'm very sympathetic to this as, like, the Shane and Kitty are these just, like, gross rich people who are really smug about having a lot of money. Rachel is here trying to like do some good in the world and they're mocking her because really they want her to just revel in having wealth. Again, I see how that all plays out if these were like sock puppets. But in fact, like the content of what each of them is saying is 
you know, there's more right about what Shane and his mom are saying about their role in the world, their understanding of wealth as a form of leverage and how to share that. Yeah. There's more right about that than Rachel, who seems to have, like, perhaps understandably, I'll allow that understandably, like, if you don't have access to that kind of capital, you are not accustomed to thinking about it as a form of power that you then have to redistribute mm. responsibly, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Like, you just don't see yourself as possessing that. So you think of yourself as, like, what I have is, like, time or, like, good intentions yeah. or, you know, intelligence. And don't get me wrong, like, I, if Rachel is, like, I'm going to be the nonprofit savior girl, like, that's going to fuck some, like, some stuff up. Yeah. Irretrievably. Like, yeah. that's going to have a negative impact on people's lives. I'm fully on board with you there. I think what, to me, is more, um, like, on the show's terms, again, separate right. from, like, your terms, which are, you know, terms that, like, I wish that Mike White, like, read your book, but, like, I don't think he had access to, like, the drafts. Mike White, um, galleys are soon available. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> Mike White, read the Price of Humanity seriously, Challenge. Seriously, yeah. Um, <laughs> Melville House, send Mike White a galley challenge. <laughs> Um, that like it's Rachel and this maybe this is my own Protestant work ethic bullshit, but like Rachel does seek some sort of like life project to herself that has some sort of meaningful relationship with the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that we only get the project with relationship to the world through a Schillerian critique of philanthropy that we project on to Kitty and Shane. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think they have any of the humanity of Uh, like the like philanthropy as a read of how power functions yes i'm totally with you but when we try to read that back onto the characters themselves like i think that that this mm. juncture is actually in a rare moment of me saying this is too much over reading <laughs> <laughs> well it's just that this is my want i'm giving too much credit to the rich people who are <laughs> like who i want to be <laughs> A theme of this series, I dare say. A through line. Stay, stay, stay tuned for... Almost guaranteed to continue. Stay tuned as we simp for Maggie Siffin. Oh my god. Next I can episode. hear Danielle drowning herself in the Aegean as we record this episode. She would never. She's a very, like, expert swimmer. True. But, you know, if she's good... If there's one thing that could override her, like, her, like, lifeguarding expertise and professionalism, this podcast series might be it. But I did tell Danielle that these were happening, and she proclaims to be excited to listen. Yeah, she says that now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've got, so we have, like, the Kitty, Shane, Rachel of it all. And, like, I hear what you're saying, that, like, these characters are far cruder than I am giving them credit for. But this is, I think, one of the appealing things about this show is that that it becomes such, like, rich, emotionally, like, with emotional depth complexity Mm. for us to then do our analysis Yes. Right? Yes. Like, these characters are sturdy enough to uphold such an analysis of power and capital. Right, 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 right. Um, we should also talk about the other subplot with the Patton yes. family, which is the feud between Shane and Armand, which Kitty also somewhat instigates with her arrival, where she immediately says, this isn't the room I booked, right. which is the centerpiece of their conflict, because she's right. It's not the room that she booked for her son's honeymoon. Glossing over <laughs> that quickly, <laughs> glossing over the Oedipal whatever of that, um, she's right. It's not the room that she booked. Shane has brought this up to Armand. Armand, 
like bewilderingly does not say you're so right i i messed up i did not like put you in the correct room we will refund the cost of your stay or we will get you into that room as soon as possible like he does not the so the feud with shane and armand begins there and begins with shane fixating on admittedly oh perhaps over fixating on like not having the room at the luxury resort that was booked but not incorrectly and armand like again understandably chafing at this entitlement but again very incorrectly (laughs) trying to weasel out of accountability for it yes so there's to go back to kind of the way we were thinking about the conversation between them, I think there's a useful contrast with Shane here. Yes. Whereas Shane and Kitty in that conversation about about money, right, there is a lot to, like, read them into this more critical, like, take on whatever. Like, I think actually the feud with Armand is just a pure, and I'm fine with this, like, unadulterated, aren't these people fucking terrible? Mm. Witness, like... You, Yes, like there's the, the the original wrong that is caused is like instead of one like overpriced fancy suite, they're in a different overpriced fancy suite. Now there are like palm trees between them in the ocean, like whatever the fuck. Okay, fine. Like there's Armand- no plunge pool, John. <laughs> there was no plunge, no pool. plunge pool. They booked the plunge pool. They did book book the plunge pool. It's yeah. their honeymoon. <laughs> they booked the yeah, plunge pool. The honey, but I think it's the it's the honeymoon part, and this is like just a simple but I think effective writing thing that Mike White has done is that like yes, it's their honeymoon and yes it should be special and that's like the root of why they wanted the lounge that they're the suite that they booked but shane's like masculine wealth anger right about the situation means that like he's fucked their honeymoon by Mm. his fixation on the feud with armand and on winning the feud with armand right right like witness the conversation that they have where like he is in the middle of talking with Rachel, in the middle of fighting with Rachel. And he's like, I'm leaving so I can go fuck fuck up something and continue my feud with Armand. Which Rachel, like, again, gratingly, I understand, calls him out on. But, like, she's actually right. Mm-hmm. Like, they are trying to, or, like, hypothetically are having an emotional conversation. And he's like, I gotta go, I gotta go fuck this guy's shit up. Yeah. Um, so, like, there's the, the, the cruder version of Shane here is, I think, also more on the class avatar side than the rich inner life of the character side. Sure. So, and here's what's funny, is that, like, Shane could get Armand fired. Yeah. Like, Shane could... Which is what he's trying to do. He's trying to get to the general manager. Right. So, actually, let me back up a second. Shane could absolutely, like, get Armand fired and and definitely just leave a lot of um, um, vengeful destruction in his wake after his honeymoon. Like, Mm -hmm. he has so many options. This is the thing. So his mom arrives, and I think that his mom arrived because she wanted to check on the situation and also let Armand know that he has fucked with a family that has a (laughs) lot of influence over the luxury market. Right, because Kitty was so exhausted from the wedding process. Yes. Like, she was going to take, you know, a trip with her friend an island or two over in Hawaii, um, but decided to come a couple days early to flit over to visit them. And she very expertly name drops, oh, I was with my friend so-and-so, we know each other from Miss Porter's, and I've, you know, I had heard from my friends that this was so romantic blah blah like she's very clearly telegraphing to armand like in the same way we're i'm now going out of universe for a second um there's a moment on mad men if you want to talk about one percenter shows there's a moment where um don wants to fire pete Mm -hmm. um and uh 
rightly, right? Except that then, um, <laughs> oh my God, who is it? Um, it's not Roger. It's the guy, Bert. Yeah. Um, Bert then says, you can't fire Pete. He's part of this like wealthy, prominent family. And I don't want his mom bad mouthing us on Block Island next year to, or Shelter Island to um, like all of their rich friends. Yeah. So there's a certain like we have to maintain reputation. We can't piss off somebody from this particular subset right so, so this is bert as kitty is and they like are diagnosing how wealth works correct okay. absolutely so anyway back to white lotus um this is the thing is like um shane is not as good at his as his mom mm. at being rich um because he could <laughs> just like he could just silently destroy this place yes and wouldn't that be so satisfying <laughs> but, he would get a fucking kick out of it right but but instead he just like blusters like directly at this guy like very insecurely like his e- it's his ego wound mm-hmm. that is like how dare this guy not like pay attention to me not genuflect me and it's like dude you can wreck this man's life like isn't that something to look forward to yeah, I think I think you're preceding some of the like yeah. Nietzsche to come. So maybe, I maybe. I appreciate that very much. Yes, okay. There's also the Armand side of this though, and like obviously he is spiraling deeply, including right. like contributing to the f- escalating feud with Shane. Yes. Right? To like you know, he comes into possession of Olivia and Paula's drugs and just right. proceeds to like he's been sober for however long or in recovery for however long and right. like proceeds to like start and then really go on a bender. Um and he's spiraling. And like one of the things that as I was watching it the show this time is that particularly the like stealing of the backpack and the feud with Shane are like I think for Armand and maybe for Mike White are the petty, misdirected, like class anger, class revenge mechanisms that do to like whatever is going on with Armand and his own psyche and to the conditions of living under financialized neoliberal capital, like inevitably maybe turn back on himself. Right. So like the attempt to express class anger or class rage or class revenge or whatever gets channeled back onto Armand himself through his multiple foibles of. Yeah. uh, So far. Foibles that include um, like blowing Shane off repeatedly, um, intentionally setting him up on a boat ride (laughs) when Tanya spreads her mom's ashes in the prior episode. Like that's where this became really unforgivable to me. I mean, this is my other hot take now. I don't want to give anything away, but uh, and certainly I would not be the one to say that somebody deserves the things that happened to Armand. But. (laughs) 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 Like this guy a little bit brought this on himself Uh by like poking these bears repeatedly, which does which does underscore your point, John, that like. He there is such a self-sabotage to yeah. all of this mm-hmm. of like now. Um, so he he blows Shane off. He sets them up on this boat ride. He then like gives him a fake number to call. He keeps like <laughs> avoiding him. And I'm it's like a disconnected it's number. A disconnect- it's not even right. like That's a, right. goes That's to right. a voicemail that right. your friend or something. Right. A disconnected number. Like there's the lengths that he goes to to avoid like taking responsibility for his mistake with this guy um, really are like where the sabotage starts to truly spin out. But also where I understand like this isn't about Shane, to your point, this is about his class rage at having to once again, like 
eat shit and knuckle under to like yet another one of these people. So the problem with this, yes. And eat shit from a like relatively privileged class position even, right? But it's like, you know, he's making like, what do we think his salary is? Is like manager of that. 135. Yeah, I was going to say like mid 100s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's even on Hawaii, like he's living fine, right? But it's the like intricacies of the different class relationships and that he understands himself to only be eating shit by people that are wealthier and more powerful than he is right that then he turns back on himself so it's like a you know it's yes a, to be very cliche about like a very podcasty about it, it's like Ouroboros saying absolutely like, wealth something absolutely and the the challenge with the show is that like i think many people can sympathize with armand because they've been in this position before and they know what it's like to have the accumulated effect of being in a service position Mm -hmm. to people wealthier than you having to like just endure that humiliation um over and over again and you can understand how somebody would like this would be the thing that snaps them however in the world of the show we're only seeing the guy who ends up like who who causes armand to break is just one guy who's there on his honeymoon yeah. who booked the plunge pool mm-hmm. for whom i still have a lot of sympathy <laughs> <laughs> and i will say like i mean murray bartlett obviously like this was a star turn for him and like he's doing a really wonderful job with armand um even the, some of the more cliched-ish writing moments, like the he puts the drugs back in the bag as he's about to give the bag back to Olivia and to Paula, and then like has the second thought, and it's like, well, like these people are assholes. Mm-hmm. I got like turned down my proposition by Mark the night before, which yeah. I wasn't sure if I was serious about it in the first place or not. And this fucking Shane guy's still on my fucking ass all the time. Then like retakes some of the drugs back out, takes some drugs and gives it back to the girls without any of the drugs in the bag. In fact, those plot lines intersect directly yes. because it's when Shane confronts him outside yep. his office that mm-hmm. he then has that ha- doubles back yes. and empties uh-huh. the drugs from the bag and keeps them for himself. Yeah. So it's it's clear that it's that moment of like, I have had f- enough of these people telling me what mm-hmm. to do and riding my ass and like, I'm going to fuck them up for once watch the segue so instead of like he's they're riding his ass so he has to go eat some ass yeah nice wow john you You had to i'm professional if nothing else you had to slip it in (laughs) (laughs) so but like again this is i think to your point about armand he's not the hero we want or need mechanism of resolution is not only self-sabotage but also like some semi-coercively, like, proposition slash trade um, with this, like, younger, less powerful service worker in, like, an entry-level position at the resort, right, to have sex with him in exchange for drugs and the vague promise of workplace favors, like, you can choose what shifts you want to work, to be determined, offer in the middle of, like, drug haze. Yeah. So, like, there's also the Armand's not only self-sabotaging, but also just, like, kicks further down absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah that's that's the armand of it all yeah <laughs> and so if that's the armand of it all like the paired figure with armand even though they're quite different from one another in any number of ways is belinda oh yeah right of and course. so here we get belinda's uh has had to put up with shit from tanya mm-hmm. but seems to also like at least be willing to express a genuine care for tanya whether or not she feels it is a very different question belinda 
is a major gifts fundraiser, mm. right? Please, like, please explain. So in this episode, this is when Tanya, um, she's not up until now, to be clear. Like, I think you're right that up until now, there have been like acts of care and concern from Belinda to Tanya that have had no... Uh, none, no ulterior motive visible right. to us. They're, they're transactional and right. there's some genuine care. Both right. of those things can be true. Absolutely. Um, it's when, so witness the moment where Tanya is there and Belinda brings her some peppermint tea. Yeah. So I think there's some instinct in her that says like, this is a, this is a person worth going the extra mile for. Mm-hmm. For what reason? TBD, right? Yeah. Worth because she's clearly struggling and in pain. Worth because, like, she's, uh, you know, a very rich guest at the hotel mm-hmm. who's, like, might Without tip very well. yeah. Right, who might tip very well. Like, I don't think she could conceive of her right. being, like, who could be my, you know, angel Benefactor, investor. Yeah. Right, exactly. But that that is the conversation that starts here is when... Tanya says, and I, this is one of the tragedies of Tanya is that like, I think there are moments where this character is actually quite lucid and smart and like Mm -hmm. tuned in. And then it just gets staticed out. Um, So she says, Belinda, you should have your own wellness center and I can help make that happen. Uh, And I, I believe that that's a genuine offer in that moment. Now, the temporality of this is key because it's always true in that moment, because in that moment offers like that, are make like make rich people feel better about themselves. Exactly. And it's the that the wealth of Tanya enables her to like make that comment and be genuine in the moment, regardless of the commitment and potential or actuality to that being realized at any point in the future, right? This is like Tanya's equivalent of I see somebody that I like on campus that I haven't seen for a couple of months. And I'm like, oh yeah, let's catch up and grab a coffee at some point in the future. And we like kind of both know that maybe that coffee's not actually going to happen. Yes. But like we had a good conversation for five minutes, like yes. outside Hawkins Pond. Um, and like this is Tanya's equivalent, except she's fucking over somebody's life. Well, because the stakes, like in that circumstance, John, like the stakes are equal exactly. for both of you. Yes. And here the stakes are so widely different. Yes. Like this is a person's life who could be totally totally transformed from a service Mm -hmm. industry job and, you know, somebody who could sneeze out that amount of money. Um, The, uh, to bring this back just ever so briefly to the um, Kitty, Rachel Shane triad, another thing Kitty says in that conversation that then plays out in this one is Kitty says, here's to Rachel. Here's the great thing about being involved in nonprofits. You can be as involved or not as you want, which gives you tons of flexibility you don't answer to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember a second thing that she said, but it's like what she does is she really praises the flexibility of being a lay per a lay person, a volunteer, yeah. a board member, a whatever, because it gives you flexibility and you're not accountable to anyone. Um, and that, of course, is like a very um, sharp edge truth of being the rich person involved in a nonprofit is like, yeah, you're not accountable to anyone. You can dip in and out. It's maddening for the staff who are trying to like manage you and close your annual gift. But like, that is the advantage. And you see that playing out here where you have Tanya, where it's like, yeah, you can engage with this as much or as little as you want. Belinda can't hold you accountable, right? It's exactly the same dynamic of like, you can engage with this so long as it makes is it's satisfying and gratifying to you. Yeah. And then dip. Mm-hmm. And then witness Belinda, who her dream is and her reality is to, like, 
I'm, I'm assuming on some level, like Belinda's very in, like insightful character in a lot of ways, right? So I think she probably realizes there's some level of bullshit artistry that's happening here. But on the off chance that like Tanya could deliver, she like we know she got in like before 9 a.m. because Armand is showering and she's like thinks that it's a guest and it doesn't open until nine. And then like she's there at night, like working up this business plan on off hours, like has written like a 20 page business plan to give to Tanya by the end of the day. Right. Right. So like there's the there's the emphasis that like Belinda is continue to going to do wage labor like above and beyond for this like fake dangling dream that had been put in front of her. Well, once again, and this is a preview into my as yet signed or drafted second book. Uh-huh. This is why she's a major gift fundraiser because yeah. she's doing wage labor and emotional labor. Mm-hmm. Right. And she also knows that when you have a potential funder on the line, you have to close quickly because their attention will move Equally quickly. And yeah. she can't, I mean, like, you can't always get in front of the guy, yeah. as my old boss used to say. But, <laughs> like, but you, the most important thing is, like, you got to follow up quick and you got to close quick because, you know, it's it, she understands, I think, the nature of that, the temporality of that mm-hmm. power dynamic. Yeah. And thus, I mean, as you were pointing out before we started recording, like, Belinda is Tanya's nonprofit. Correct. Is what you told Bel- me. Yeah. That's right. Belinda is Tanya's nonprofit. Most people on the show have a nonprofit. They just don't know it, but they have uh-huh. a thing that they're using to make them feel virtuous, to make them feel better about themselves, yeah. feel like good people, that they ultimately are totally free to discard. Um, when they when they find something that more directly feeds their mm. ego. Is there anyone else on the show who is another person's nonprofit? Absolutely. Paula is Olivia's nonprofit. I.e. the two women of color who are like right. significant characters. Right. That's also right. Um, there was one other that uh, came to mind that now I can't quite recall. Rachel is Shane's nonprofit. Oh. Ooh. But actually here, I mean, to, to just contradict myself. Please. Um, here's the irony is that like, Shane for is actually quite devoted to Rachel, even in his like sort of fucked up blustery way. Yeah. Like he is committed. He's like she does throughout the show kind of throw a lot at him, a lot of doubt, a lot of criticism, a lot of insecurity. Um, and he at various times says, like, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I'm your husband and I'm committed to you. And so for all of his douchiness, there is something decent <laughs> about his but it's steadiness. Like decent or steadiness out of like white ultra bourgeois het norms. Maybe. Right? More so than it is like a genuine emotional care for Rachel as a human being with projects, aspirations, conflicted emotions, a deep psyche. I, I will continue to be a Shane apologist. I know. And say that, and I'm like, going to continue to make you get on record as great. that. Great. I'm <laughs> thrilled to do that. Um, so, so Kitty comes to visit and Shane remembers a conversation that he had earlier that day when he was distracted by his feud with Armand, but, like, he remembers the conversation he had with Rachel And he says, why don't you ask my mom for advice? Like, she knows a lot about this. He, like, does in his own, again, his own very limited way, want to be supportive, want to, like, follow up, want to help his wife do what she wants to do. It's, you know, she's maybe more, she maybe has more complex needs and, and incentives than he has the capacity to understand. But I think Shane's 
I can't, am I going to say this, that Shane's soul is pure? No. But like, I think that his, I think that there are some core values to Shane that are admirable underneath the masculine bluster. Okay. Agree to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who says you can't disagree in America anymore? Um, <laughs> That's the what podcasts are for. <laughs> Oh my god! Wait, re-record that because I talked over you. Oh, that's. I think it's better that way. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh. How would you describe the attitude, familially, of the Mossbachers towards money and towards their wealth? Oh yes, thank you. This is a great question. Their attitude is confusing because they clearly have a shit ton of money, yeah. and yet. There's, especially in Nicole, a strange financial anxiety, like a financial anxiety that belongs to like two or three class tiers down Uh financial insecurity, which they no longer, I think, have. And some signs of this are that like they only booked one suite, even though clearly they need more beds. Right. So like Paula and Olivia are on the pullouts uh, of the sofa. Yeah. And Quinn is on a cot in the pantry. Yeah. Like, what? First of all, what was the plan here? Like, you, somebody knew this was happening. And what you did you think it was like, oh, it's all going to be fine? Like, the kids, blah, blah, blah. That's such, I hate to be this, but it's like, that's such a middle class way to go about this re- kind of resort vacation. Is And like, that's not a criticism. It's just like bizarrely out of place mm-hmm. for like what's going on here. So, and then there's, yeah. there's, so there's that. And then there's like in the morning, she, Nicole wakes up Olivia. And Paula and it's like we already paid for the buffet and it's really expensive so you are coming to breakfast okay now. so that is like a thought that I've had at like a Hampton Inn when it's like <laughs> 9 25 and the buffet closes at 10 and I'm like I don't really want to do this yeah, but, but I, I, I I'm gonna have some chemically like engineered <laughs> eggs and like quote. that's when it's appropriate right yeah. when you're like I I should just like go get this yeah. free breakfast that's there that's what I'm thinking when I've paid 135 Five dollars. Yeah, there were so many other ways to do this. This is so dumb. So yes, that strange, like, sort of lingering anxiety about money. Um, it's a very, it's like frugal, but in the most, like, you're you're already spending shit tons of money. Yeah. Once your pot committed to this, like, why are we haggling about the price of the breakfast yeah. buffet? It's a very marginal frugality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That that is an article or name. <laughs> I've never heard one. Great. Um, so there's that part of the Mossbachers, and then there's the, and this is something that I think is consistent across multiple points of their storyline in this episode, is we get, like, the bracelets that Nicole has been gifted by Mark with his own money, he says, right, even though she makes more What the hell him. does but, that like, even mean? <laughs> exa- A, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And B, it's like, so we find out in this episode that Mark cheated on Nicole and got the bracelets, or that he tells this to Quinn, right? Yes. That, uh he got the bracelets for her like as a you know apology or whatever Quinn brings that up at dinner that night because she's wearing the bracelets and it's not that on the surface that Quinn uh like knows that Mark cheated on Nicole that upsets Nicole so much it's that he vocalizes out loud how much the bracelets cost like that like piercing of the veneer of we're not actually that wealthy right that we have to be marginally frugal Mm. but like Mark can you know blow 150k on apology bracelets because he cheated on Nicole this maybe belongs in glass but I have to say the irony of Mark being the one to buy a pair of golden handcuffs for (laughs) Nicole 
is rich. Uh-huh. Like I, one wonders if he if the symbolism ever occurred to him. But like, no, hmm. he's thinking about the man monkey, right? That's his whole right, uh, thing. Of and I believe it's the next episode where he like pretends to be, like be a monkey to try to attract Nicole, right? And they uh, have sex. Right. right. That's the next episode. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, I can't believe that's one of our spoilers. <laughs> All the things. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the only spoiler we give is that. So I don't sorry, think that'll audience. either deter or attract you. <laughs> Watch this show. <laughs> oh, God. What an odd couple, Steve Zahn and, and Connie Britton. Like, you would think Connie Britton could have, like, searing chemistry with anyone. Nope. But the it's the lack of chemistry, right? right. That's the point, right? Right. That, like, why, why are they together, I have actually? no fucking idea. I have absolutely no idea. Anyway, the bracelets, to your point, like, I, I, I have to say, it is... It is jarring um, to just blurt out, like, are those the, like, as if the only thing about the bracelets is that they cost $75,000, which in fact may be the point Mm -hmm. um, with an article of jewelry like that. But it's, you know, it it is a weird, like, thing to to interject into a conversation. (laughs) But I think they're really feeling awkward about it because Paul is there. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, my God, like that is so gauche to reveal that we have this level of wealth and we can spend this much money in front of our daughter's like charity case friend. Yeah, charity case friend who like is witness to everything that's happening. And like, of course, she knows they have this much wealth. Right. Yes. She's on vacation is this extra like side project. Yeah. I have to say about Paula, and this is the thing I feel about her in this episode and every episode is like, if you're so opposed to all of this. You don't have to be here. <laughs> like you're you're in no way better than the rest of the stuff that's happening. No way better than is an interesting phrasing. <laughs> but you're so you're on board with Team Nicole. Like you don't care about anything. You just want a seat at the table of tyranny. Well, way to set that up. <laughs> yes. Okay. I do agree with that. Yeah. For uh, for I, Olivia, right? Least, for those girls, for Paula to some extent, because the first part of that statement from Nicole is correct. Yes. They don't want to actually change the systems of um, economic exploitation. Side note, which are all global anyway. Correct. See our colleague Rachel Brown for further <laughs> reading on this. Like, not the ones that benefit them. So, what is them sitting by the pool? At that resort, if not benefiting from those structures of economic yeah. exploitation, mm-hmm. like she's she's calling, she's absolutely right in calling them out. They are on this vacation. They are in, they are eating the buffet. They are sitting by the pool. They are ordering the Watching drinks. Watching the like white imaginary of totally. a quote unquote native dance. Right. Yeah. They are they are perhaps not wrongly, but they are they are going after the manager, a staff member of this resort for stealing their drugs. Like they are absolutely <laughs> they are they are the guests. Yes. So the claims that somehow they are not implicated in all of their critiques of the other guests ring very, very hollow. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things I like about the show, though, ultimately, and this is a, a theme that's connected across many of the characters we've discussed so far, is that, like, yes, Mike White is proving his very, demonstrating his various points about class conflict, and also, like, no one gets left off the hook. No. Right? Like, there are no kind of pure, virtuous souls who are without fault. There's no ethical vacation under capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> The end. The end. <laughs> I mean, we had some segments and some other ideas, but like, I don't even know if you know. I don't even know if we can continue. That's a wrap. Thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, 
and, and the show got some criticism and Mike White got some criticism for like simplifying debate, like pop popular debates about cancel culture or privilege or whatever through the avatars of Olivia and Paula. But I actually think that like, it's a much more for some of the reasons you've identified like complex thing that he is trying to do is to say that like, yes, it's, there's all this fucked up stuff going on that these girls are correctly pointing out. And like, it's not like they're purely wrong or purely exaggerating or anything. Like, you know, when Nicole says it's really hard for straight white men and Olivia's like, ew, mom, cringe. Like, she's right. Yes. Um, But so too is Nicole right about like the complicity or uh, conscious or unconscious desire of Olivia, at least, and Olivia and Paula jointly, like, to join into those structures. And in fact, the show sets that up so beautifully with that introductory scene Mm -hmm. of Paula talking to Kai, who actually is one of the workers of this resort. Mm -hmm. And you learn that the entire context for this resort's existence is... A, a nearly irredeemable theft of land uh-huh. for the purpose of this luxury resort development, mm-hmm. which does set the stage for like, if you're at this resort, you're already uh, in the ethical red, dare I say, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and so he says like the government annulled our, our contract right. to own this land. And now we are the local labor like, force. Through being the indigenous structures, like granted in perpetuity, right. In the pre-colonial indigenous sovereign like, yes. existence before whites came and built resorts. I believe his term was it's sacred. Yeah. Boy, talk about the disenchantment. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder this resort. And we'll talk about this in a moment. <laughs> feels so like hollow and dry. Grab. <laughs> it, has, it has disenchanted the previously <laughs> sacred land <laughs> yeah. upon which it's built. Right. And the, the lack of redemption, right, yes. that's available to any of the characters. Right. Like, any if you're having this conversation at the resort, that, like, the fact that you're at this resort as a paying guest just overrides, yeah. I think, a lot of your other qualms about ethics in the world yeah and that's ultimately more interesting than us laughing at steve zahn or connie Britton for like saying stupid lines about like it's really hard to be a white dude yes right? like the, the more interesting thing is that totally as agree. to your point indicated by that conversation between kai and paula is the opening to right. this episode right so i think like in general then what you've identified and we've identified across all of these characters is how this confusion about virtue and wealth is something that is uniting tying them together across their many foibles to say the least right and i think that in some ways like there's a so uh if i may just go on a riff for a second like in in, um what is this podcast of course so i think this originates in the talmud um but it's only in like jewish scholarship there's there are four categories of how you can read um a text and there's shot which is surface level Mm -hmm. um there is well, second one that I got to look up. <laughs> There's Remez, um, which is sort of this like third interior level. And then there is Sod, which is like the kernel. It's a bit like ways of looking at a seed where you have like the surface of it and then like the pulp of it and then like the flesh that surrounds it, and then like the Wait, kernel. Did Aristotle steal this for causation? Very for possible. <laughs> we got to look at the timeline on that. I'm not sure who stole what. Uh, yeah. Let's. <laughs> do, you, do you want the Chabad version of this? I do. Yes, of course. All right. <laughs> Does it come with a shot of sliver? <laughs> oh no! It's they. It's a, like a real article, not like oh, a, dear. you know. There's just a like a listicle of it. Yeah. Keep going. I'll, okay. I'm working on it. In any event, like I, what happened with this show is that I think a lot of people got to 
if not the shot, like the sort of ball reading, like the second layer of reading, which is like, oh, uh, the rich people are so gross and so bad. And the working class people or the middle class people are like chafing against how bad the rich people are. And what to me, the sode of it is, is like everyone here is implicated in this ecosystem. And in fact, it is the people who are most deluded about Hmm. who they are in this system that have the ability to cause the most harm. Although, I don't know if I fully agree with that last part, right? Because, like, I don't... I think Rachel is the most... Maybe the most deluded, or Tanya is the most deluded about who they are in these systems to Mm. themselves. Mm. But Rachel, like, for all her faults, doesn't... Isn't the causer of great harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair point. So the, uh, the we have Peshat, Ramez, Drush, and Sod. Drush. Yeah. Thank you. Peshat, Ramez, Drush, and Sod. Yeah. So, like, trying to just say, like, the, the sort of counter... There's a lot that's counterintuitive here, where, to me, a lot of the characters who are very villain-coded, mm-hmm. because, for all the reasons you point out, like, there's a certain... There's such an entitlement and a certain... Such a smugness to them being the people of wealth, that they're the ones who are villain-coded. And yet, it's the people who try to disavow their possession of wealth and power who irritate me the most. Hmm. And the ones who are villain coded actually feel very refreshing to me in their clarity. And there's also another way in which this is working that like my, uh, towards someone like Shane, right. Is also the exact same ressentiment that Shane directs towards Armand. Totally. It's not that different. Yes. So like the real ressentiment is like the characters we hate along the way. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to go not to the Talmud, but as like the, you know, to think about Catholicism, obviously we're recording in the context of mine and Regan's journey through Young Pope, right? That there's the the wealth virtue thing is that like these characters, as you and I were discussing before we were recording, like what I realized in our conversation and the way you were framing it is like, this is a matter of how do people atone for or self-soothe, yes. right, through virtuous signaling of their wealth. Right. I think self-soothe is exactly right because atonement would require a kind of direct, like, taking of responsibility. Yes, but for them, the self-soothing is atonement. Like, that's as deep as the atonement goes. Right, right. But that's just atoning. That's just like sock puppet atonement. Yes, You know what I mean? That's not It's only Peshat atonement. A man via man. (laughs) What is the podcast if not the original (laughs) confession booth? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's every theory ship about the young Pope. It's (laughs) like, this reminds me of Foucault. This reminds me of the confession. Uh, (laughs) Wow, really? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very deep reading that I'm getting. Of, the, of course, of Pope Lenny. Oh my goodness, we All love right. it. We Should love we head it. to the segments? Let's, because right. we've already set set ourselves up for one of them really <laughs> sure beautifully. Have. Yeah. So we have not Daniel Dossier, but we have <laughs> Schiller and McMahon twenty twenty three to replace the Dossier. Amy, would you care to? Of course, um, enlighten listeners. John, is one of the most gratifying scholarly experiences of my life is co-authoring papers with. John McMahon. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. And so here we have our newest work in progress <laughs> <laughs> is our rampant speculation about episodes of television. Yeah, exactly. In this in the spirit of not quite great books. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All the way down. So this is what one would think one, what one thinks would happen in the rest of the White Lotus solely based on this episode. Right. Right. So this is ignoring everything that comes before, ignoring the two episodes after. If you were to only watch this episode, what do you think would happen? And for me, the big thing is that is, um, I think on this episode is strongly 
making it so that Mark will have sex with Armand at some point and Armand's drug-fueled craze, like, given the references to what happened in the previous episode and given the, you know, like, intense uh, Armand attention towards Mark, which is then called out by Quinn. I think it's Quinn that says, like, or no, it's Olivia who says, like, Dad, I think he wants to fuck you. Yeah. Another moment of excellent manners from the Mossbacher <laughs> children. I have to, if I can just say, like, the the gasp is like, sure, piercing the veil of wealth. Like, that's, that's you know, there's a lot to, to unpack there. But, like, these children are just so rude. Their parents are bad parents. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, they've not taught them any fucking manners or any fucking respect. But I digress. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Agree completely that, like, Armand and Mark would have sex. Um also, I suspect that, like, somehow Rachel would just, like, run away. Like, yes. uh, there's uh, every reason to think that she would find, like, either she would run away or something would happen to her. Like, mm-hmm. there's a history of violence on White Lotus. Like, would she drown? Yeah. I don't know. Like, would she suffer some major injury and have to, like, go home? I, who knows? You know, yeah. but, like, she would find some way, some, I must say, not particularly courageous or heroic way <laughs> of getting out of this situation. <laughs> my, my indecisive queen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, she would definitely ambivalent her way out of it. <laughs> like the best of us. Of course, of course. <laughs> Any other additions to Schiller McMahon 2023? It would actually be really interesting if Tanya ended up giving Belinda money, yeah. but then being a real pain in her ass. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a like viable path for, for that storyline. Yeah, I think that's very, very viable. Um, and I'm pretty sure the Mosbachers would get divorced, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, unless it was too expensive, which it might be. Yeah, I think they're so caught up in the n- norms of heterosexual kinship yeah um and like what the family structure is witness the like clearly olivia and quinn have absolutely zero tie to one another right like emotionally and nicole's constantly being like well hang out with your brother include your brother and it's like that doesn't work for either sibling actually but it does work for upholding this like ideological vision of what the like four person family with a wife a husband Mm. and a kid who's a boy and a kid who's a girl speaking of being bad parents she has seemed to have forgotten what age her kids are <laughs> also, like, that super double doesn't work for teenagers yeah exactly so because quinn's like what 17 or something, something like that and, yeah uh, olivia's in college yeah, yeah that's not gonna work at that point yeah. so yeah that's our those are our speculations all right let's head to gloss let's um any thoughts on just kind of the structure of the white lotus either in the like what this episode particularly tells us about its structure with the you know like limited series nature of mm-hmm. it or the one episode equals one day at the resort structure of right. it or anything like that because that actually just like looking honing on this episode in particular does i think indicate the success of the structure and yes. that there are self-contained stories with histories that are referenced in just this episode like that make it somewhat effective even as a standalone well it's nice that like there's the stories connect but not too much you know Mm -hmm. like they they sort of graze up against one another in a way that reinforces them as part of the show's reality i think they use the restaurant very well in that way where like you see you'll see like rachel in like the corner of a shot sitting next to like one of the other guests Mm -hmm. in question you'll see the Mosbachers walk past Tanya on their way to their mm-hmm. table. Like you just see them all sharing the same universe. And then again, sort of 
their storylines will glance up against one another, but not it's not like a whodunit situation. Exactly. And there's like the politesse of like they will have the tiny conversations, right? That then get fucked up by reality in life. Like, you know, Shane and Rachel have been on the boat with Tanya while Tanya is scattering her mother's ashes. And so Tanya like comes over and Shane is like, oh no, I can't believe she's walking over here. Yes. Right. From on the and the next morning at like the terrace restaurant. Yes. Oh my God. That, right. Buffet. Right. Yes. The um we have to talk about the buffet oh, in a second. But, like, that moment with Tanya is just... This is where Jennifer Coolidge just, like, shines mm-hmm. as the centerpiece, really, mm-hmm. of the White Lotus universe of, like, I scattered my mother's ashes and it felt like scattering fish food in an <laughs> aquarium. Am I feeding my mother to the fishes? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, she yeah. pulled off that line. How did she pull off yeah, that line? incredible line delivery. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah it was great. Yeah, so we've got the kind of structural pieces. And then I think there's a question about, like, the visual language of the show. Mm. Um, you know, and, like, one of... And how the show connects across its two seasons mm. at different White Lotus resorts in different locations, right? Yeah. That there's a use of water, right, mm. and water imagery as, like, a scene transition um, that I think connects a lot of them, as well as the opening and like closing of the two seasons as a whole is focused on like water and um like water is that functions vis-a-vis plot but also water is like what are the depths that are being plumbed Mm. and like what's happening above and below the surface so like there's that kind of visual stuff that's happening to literalize and like encourage us to do some of the um like analysis that you've let us down the the encroaching threat of like nature and mortality on these (laughs) these small parlor Yes, on comedies. These, like, yeah, yes. tiny petty people. Yes. Um, so that's the thing that stuck out the most to me about just like the visuals of it, as well as the then what you just pointed out, the use of the spaces of the resort to do some of the like less obvious narrative threading yeah. and keep those like grazed connections, as yeah. you put it. I also have to say, fashion wise, yes. um, the person who stands out to me the most is Nicole, who dresses terribly Uh like for a woman of her means and success like her her resort wear is giving walmart like it's (laughs) just like you contrast her with kitty and you're just like okay and and again it underscores the marginal frugality where it's like oh sis like you got this at costco no judgment but like girl you can afford trina turk now like what are we doing what who the the kind of like you're you're really not used to yourself as a person with this kind of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there are other costuming choices that really, you point out the Cornell hat yeah. on Shane. Of I course. mean, there's Tanya's like, in some ways I like Tanya's outfits the best. Like mm-hmm. I, I it's like they're obviously communicating with her, communicating about her as a character in terms of the like scatteredness of her psyche is reflected in the, we have big, bold patterns. We have like some color clashing that is maybe on purpose by her, or maybe just like an outgrowth of the way she exists in the world. So mm-hmm. like, I think just in terms of costuming, like it's a very obvious choice, but I think Tanya is my yeah. favorite um, of all of the characters. And like, I'm also interested in like Armand's resort manager wear yes i mean a like murray barlow looks great in the resort manager wear which could be a huge uh no go Mm -hmm. but he pulls it off really well unlike obama he pulled off the tan linen suit (laughs) he did did (laughs) pull off the tan linen suit for sure and that egg yellow which is like i think a very hit or miss color um he pulled off really well with the suit 
I know, really remarkable. If only if only Obama had worn that tan suit on a visit to his home state, it might have might have gone over well. I don't think it was going to go over well. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Any other fashion costuming choices you and I identify? Those, I think those are the ones that come to mind for now. Yeah. Okay. All right. I did note that at one point, I think it's her pajamas. Paula is wearing a Rage Against the Machine shirt. Of course. If she I is. caught that correctly. Well, how many Rage Against the Machine songs do you think she's listened to in her life? <sighs> From start to finish. Yes. Two. Wow. Generous. <laughs> I, think, I think zero. But like at a party at college, not like. Fine. How not... many Rage Against the Machine songs do you think she's listened to that she knows are Rage Against the Machine? One. Max. One max. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But mm, what is the one Rage song that she knows? I mean, Killing in the Name of is what she heard at a party. Yeah. Um, Bulls on Parade. That's maybe. I don't even know if Bulls on Parade is is her, is yeah, her deal. We'll we'll have to throw that into Shalori McMahon twenty twenty three for a you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, even speaking of the music, like the show is, and I think it you know there was a lot of discussion about the music more so with the first season than the second season. The way it's trying to uh, both do some like traditional TV prestige TV scores but integrate some like Hawaiian music into the TV mm-hmm, score in ways mm-hmm. like I think are effective in some and less effective in others. Well, the the sort of um, elating yeah. opening song, iconic, mm-hmm. HBO crushing it with theme songs, yeah. like just unbeatable stuff. And there, it offers this sense of like claustrophobia and foreboding mm-hmm. for this show that otherwise like that 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 clues you into the fact that this isn't just like a farce about rich people exactly right like it, it's asked there's a lot of the markers of the show that ask us to engage emotionally and engage analytically or at least invite us to do so more than just don't these rich people suck yes yeah. correct which is a totally valid way of watching The White Lotus, um, <laughs> if you ask me. But that's 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 the Rachel method. So you know, I right, 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 right. That's there. the shot. That's just the shot <laughs> way of watching the show. And like we're scholars, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, like when you know, if all the world's a, and and all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah the hammer of Rosanti Ma. <laughs> so I mean, but even like. On that particular note, I think that one of the things and like this is one of the many, many, many storylines that like are just kind of lying outside of it. But that Quinn's like fascination within like running through very quickly the quote unquote going native yeah. storytelling trope um, as he like tries to befriend um, the indigenous Hawaiians mm-hmm. and like get in with them while he's been sleeping on the beach like complaining about he lost his phone and no one will let him borrow their fucking phone but he really needs a phone so there's there's that aspect of it there's greg and tanya which we don't really um have have time and want to for spoiler purposes also keep out of yeah discussion yeah a lot going on with these guys any like favorite lines or like jokes that people made that we haven't gotten to I mean, of course, the ta- like, how do you top the Tanya line about her mo- feeding her mom like fish yeah. food in an aquarium? Then they call the other waiter who is recurring throughout the season. Someone calls him Khaki Face. <laughs> and I forget who called him ah! Khaki Face. But no, like- it's um, it's a Tanya telling the girls about who she gave the um, oh, the bag right, right, to. Right. The Khaki Face right. one. Yes. Yes. Um, which is a great descriptor. And like, that is a Khaki Face guy. No doubt. No doubt. All right. 
I think it's time for the segment we've all been waiting for. Naturally. It's called Spoiled Milk. <laughs> <laughs> and Amy, I'm going to turn it over to you to explain the name of Spoiled Milk, this segment, which is taking place of bar nostalgia for the unremembered 80s right. of the Americans' fame. So Spoiled Milk, uh, fairly self-explanatory. These are shows <laughs> that are about uh, mainly white people who are not quite in the 1%. They're, you know, milk. Yeah, what do you, you know? They're, they're 2% milk. They're, the, they're 2% milk, and they are indeed deeply spoiled. They are. So I think the thing that you and I share in our analysis of the spoiled milk here is that, like, for as expensive as this resort is, it seems kind of mid. So mid. Oh, my. Just pathetic. You know? <laughs> like, so let's start with the breakfast buffet. Okay, I yes. simply must. Uh-huh. Like, so there's big bowls of fruit yeah. that are just taken out of the like, fridge. It seems like some like very yeah, bagels at home bagels. Yes, right. Like what where is where is the fire? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like where are the stations? Yeah. Where's the omelet bar? Yeah, where's like breakfast seafood, you know. Yeah, right. Where are the oysters? Like or mm. whatever the fuck. Like a poke yes, did you say poke bowl? I think bowl? like a breakfast yeah. poke bowl. I would I right. would assume that like, you know, bougie ass, like two right. percenter vacation in Hawaii, like you have breakfast poke bowls. Right. Like, I guess it's like, where is the where is the staff making other food? Because like any any establishment can just set out bowls of stuff that they took from the fridge yeah. and platters of stuff that they have. And Surely this could not be the level of like dining service available <laughs> at a resort allegedly of this caliber. Yeah. This makes me think that White Lotus is like not even quite Ritz Carlton. Like it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't stayed at Ritz Carlton since 2007. So, you know, that was for a friend's birthday party, <laughs> but let's not dwell. Were you somebody's Paula? No. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to ask that person, but maybe. <laughs> the spoiled milk that was most apparent to me was the like, Wealth anxiety and like mostly, especially for the Mossbachers, like unwillingness to like actually discuss money or like as you point out the like Shane and Rachel didn't actually seemingly have like a real conversation about money yes. and class and the position and like I'd be interested to know like do we think they have a prenup? Kitty insisted on one. Oh, of course they did. Yeah. Yeah, it's like nobody seems particularly impressive, right? Nobody is particularly impressive in their dress. Nobody's particularly impressive in their like, in in their presence of any kind. It's just like, I've been to an all-inclusive resort and it's just like, yeah, they're all pretty much the same. Like there's a pool and there's some chairs and there's like a bar where you can order drinks. And it's just like... What is it exactly that makes this resort so fucking special? Anything else we should put into Spoiled Milk? I mean, we've, we have covered a lot of this, We have, right? absolutely. And, like, it just has to be said, like, the idea that this is the 1%, this is why I think we need to clarify that these are 2% milkers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the real 1% are not traveling to a commercial resort. Like... They're not going somewhere with other people. They're building their own compounds that are fully staffed, that are fully supplied. They're not going anywhere. This is all very, like, Aravist. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. (laughs) Shall we head to the cave? Of course. All right. So 
I'm going to turn the cave over to you. I mean, you're, I think, like really driving, driving the way here. I'm, I'm the lead spelunker yes, into the cave. Indeed. Fantastic. Okay, so well, we should know that we should know that the show self caves a little bit. Yes, because like Paula and Olivia, and this was one of the you know jokes or gags of the show that was most appealing to people like Amy and I. Right. Um, like they have books of theory, just like. <laughs> At the beach every day. This episode, it was JB, it was Judith Butler, and Gender Trouble. Books okay. of theory that are so laughably dense yes. for this vacation <laughs> that they, like, have got to just be performative props. Uh-huh. Like, as I've said to you before, like, I, I couldn't get through Gender Trouble, like, with very close intentional right, reading. In, in- like, yeah, feminist texts and theories at the Grand Center. <laughs> exactly. Like, you think I'm going to bring that to the fucking <laughs> beach? Like, what? I will say, I did the Summer of Comps. I did bring Nietzsche to the beach to try to, like, really try to figure out enough Nietzsche to be able to potentially write about him for comms. I have this very, like, vivid memory of, like, all of my dad's side of the family, and we, like, there was, like, big house rented on Rhode Island, and we, like, went to the beach, and I'm like, cool, guys, I'm gonna pull out my copy of the fucking genealogy, uh, and, like, have a pen and do some writing. Loving this visual. Um, also, like, very fondly remembering my own summer of comps reading Hobbes on the porch of the Athenaeum Hotel at the Chautauqua <laughs> Institution. There's a, there's a picture of us on that very balcony. Indeed, the there is. Yeah. Indeed, there is. Um, so, yes, comps, of course, is, like, a perfectly fine exception for reading, like, dense theory yeah. wherever. Um, it's definitely not what these girls are doing. Um, <laughs> the But I'm glad you mentioned... Uh, this was probably a discarded concept by Philip Glass before he wrote Einstein on the beach. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Nietzsche on the beach because we will be bringing Nietzsche yes. to the cave with us. Yes. You, we have thrown around the word ressentiment about a dozen times already on this podcast, so we've really telegraphed yes, this to our listeners. Um, this whole show, honestly, is like the master-slave dialectic and a like grappling with slave morality that's that's the entirety of the show like the upstairs downstairs like staff guest of it all who has the power like the the girls who are flipping out about their bag because the because armand has it in his possession right like who has the power who has the leverage in that moment like the interdependence, the resentment about the interdependence, yeah. um, the freightedness of all the, the the inability to sort of speak it aloud to be like, ah, like you are controlling like a lot of the conditions of my everyday life. And therefore, like that makes me feel very unstable. So then I'm going to try and like exert more control and dominance over you like that is omnipresent in this entire show. Um, to say nothing of the discussion of like the inversion of morals and the idea that somehow like now it's so hard for straight white men because like uh, marginalized and oppressed populations are now claiming their like agency um, and that somehow that very practice is not about dismantling tyranny, but about, again, a better seat at its table. I love it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, as, as you said, we've been telegraphing it the whole time, like. This show, in some ways, is a show about, like, when ressentiment, like, clashes with the intricacies of class relationships and capitalism, but among, like, the gradations within the bourgeoisie. Totally. Right. Totally. Totally agree. Yeah. So I did was reminded of uh, one of the spoiled milk things that I forgot, which is the ability of Paula and Olivia to, like, 
get ketamine and whatever else they had in the bag, either through security or once they got to Hawaii. I forget in the first episode how the drugs arrived. That's a very, like, 1%, like, 2% teenager Big time. Yeah, that's... Right. That's mind blowing. Yeah. All right. So I think Nietzsche, you know, he gets to come out of the cave and like frolic on the mountains above the lake. Yes. Eternally roaring. (laughs) 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 Right. Um, I'm reminded now I'm going to. So I think I've probably talked about this on the show is that I do like draw the cave metaphor when I teach the cave in my classes um, and they get into groups and they have to like switch around and add stuff to each other's drawings and all of that. Um, So it's like very dialectical and so forth. And like I remember this one time there's like a stick figure horse um, that my students drew and like I called the the form of the horse. So now I want that to be Nietzsche's line. Oh, that's beautiful. Of course. Above above, like it's hanging out by the way wow the form of the horse with no name (laughs) (laughs) i rode through the desert on Nietzsche's lion of no name got theory ship time um you have a few i believe so let's let's i mean the one is a pure self-serving that like rachel please self-promote some more like i encourage this deeply i'm much obliged rachel needs to read my forthcoming book the price of humanity (laughs) how philanthropy went wrong and how to fix it to get a much clearer grasp on like the role of nonprofits in the ecosystem of capitalism, but also in inner ego economy Mm -hmm. um, of like of wealth and need and vulnerability and kind of like social social needs. Yeah. Um, So I think uh, to add on to that, like we're going to add Kitty as like the prime reader of your second book in Uh, advance, like decided now. Kitty Patton is welcome to host a book party (laughs) for the price of humanity whenever she has time on her calendar. (laughs) She's welcome to be my interlocutor for a Uh Q&A. I I welcome any collaboration opportunities with Kitty Patton. Love it. Who needs to learn nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's not a learning. That's that's as as I forget if you listen to this particular episode, but in the most recent Keller episode, you know, he like really took us to task for not having a clear purpose for theory ship about whether we wanted to enhance people's lives or make jokes about them and fuck them up. But Kitty just transcends that whole debate. Absolutely. Like, Kitty no. is just as a, of a singularity. She like Kitty Kitty's gonna book. co-teach my seminar with me. <laughs> but Rachel Rachel really needs to catch up on her reading. Yeah, Rachel, you wanna assign yeah. Rachel some other things? I do. I want to assign Rachel Sylvia Federici, um, particularly work on wages for housework, because I would like Rachel to understand understand that like she does have a job she does have a job now Mm. now whether or not she likes that job um and whether or not that job is like who she wants to be a a kind of like just labor relationship let's set all that to the side but as the wife of a rich man she does have a job in social reproduction and that that is labor that she's doing and she can absolutely critique it as like labor she does or does not want to do or is being sufficiently compensated for but like she is part of a like labor circuit um doing social reproduction i love it i think i'm gonna give armand some marcuse some like one-dimensional man to help armand a like i think that'd be you know one thing the show does is it does not romanticize armand's drug use right like Mm. doing drugs with armand like irrespective of the abuse of power at work like situation seems like a fucking bummer of a time like does not seem like anyone's having a good time in that room but 
to, I think if uh, Armand channeled his drug fuel into reading Marcuse instead of <laughs> eating Dylan's ass, um, I think that would lead to a better trip. And I think it might like help him work through like in the one dimensional society, you know, really like you got to channel your class rage into revolution, not into fucking up the life of this douchebag Shane. And on that note, Amy, it has been a wonder and an honor to talk about White Lotus and and our uh, kick off our one percent series <laughs> of like episodes. To, I'd like to think that we've differentiated this episode <laughs> sufficiently from the normal fare of not quite creep books, particularly <laughs> that closer. John, thank you. As as the Dordo said to whomever, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so up next, uh, there's going to be a Young Pope episode that you'll listen to. And the next installment of the 1% series is going to be Billions, Season 4, Episode 1, Chucky Rhodes' Greatest Game. See you next time. See you next time. This has been Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.